Somewhere I put my Bible in my notes, but I don't know where. <laughs> Somewhere between that service. Can you check and see if I put them? I go in the prayer room and pray sometimes, so it could be in there. I've never had that happen, but then again, no, that's not my Bible. Um, uh, I told the first service, um, and good morning, those of you that are uh, new to Calvary Chapel, so um, good to have you here today. I normally do carry a Bible, and I promise, I, I even preached the first service with, there's my Bible, there it is. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but it was in the prayer room, so that's got to count for something, right? So, um, that's funny, I put, I've never left it in there, but... Um, it's been a, like a busy, busy day here. A lot of stuff going on. And by the way, if it's a little warm in here, uh, I'm not sure why. We had, we had the AC guys out here. They said our system is working perfectly. I'm like, define perfect. Uh, because uh, it feels, uh, but I don't know. Anyway, we're going to have them back out again. We had them out here. He went through the whole, he pressed, he pressure checked the system, everything. It's blowing right, everything, Freon, everything's right. Uh, but at any rate, maybe it's just the humidity, which is like 98% out there today. So... It is a humid day, which I guess the system. So I'll do a 10-minute message, and we'll be... No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, a couple of quick things. I told the first service, I ha- we've never... We've always set up VBS Sunday night after the service. The first time I've ever preached with the setup on Sunday morning, I feel like I'm at Bush Gardens. You know, the, uh, that's where I feel like... Uh, if you've ever crossed the drawbridge and you go into jolly old England, this is, a, this is what it looks like right here. Now, you don't even have to go. You've seen it. So uh, I've got a horse and a, and a knight on either side of me. And so maybe that disorientation made me leave this in the prayer room. But anyway, uh, good to have all of you here this morning. We've got a couple other things. And you know, Tawan did a great job with his allergies, shortening worship just because we have no room for anyone but him up on the stage, no room for anyone else in the worship team, and we also have a couple of other important things. Thank you for Melissa and uh, Allison, and we're looking forward to the next three nights of VBS. But speaking of Melissa, today uh, we are going to be ordaining her husband Jason as one of our newest deacons at Calvary Chapel Richmond. And so you just saw uh, Melissa up here, and I'm going to uh, invite her and Jason up to come stand here. And they're not going to stand here long, just a couple of minutes, so we can just pray over them. So uh, in, the, in Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, we see the qualifications of a deacon, and they're up there on the screen. You can read the passage yourself. And uh, it's very important that not just that the deacon be a man of God, but it even says his wife has to have certain godly characteristics. And, and Melissa exhibits all those. Jason and Melissa run our children's ministry. They took it over uh, January 1 of this year, and they're doing a great job uh, running our children's ministry. So they have been serving. Uh, they arrived here from California. Uh, they've been here since 2015, and uh, we've been blessed to have them here. I think Luke was like four or five when you got here. Two? I was way off. So he was two when you got here. So uh, they've been here since 2015. Jason just turned old. He turned 40 recently. So uh, so now he's seasoned. In the, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, you, know, you couldn't serve in the priesthood in certain respects until you were 30. So you got 10 years on that. So you got lots of experience now. So uh, I just want to invite Jason and Melissa to come up. We want to pray over Jason and Melissa. And then if our, our elders and deacons, I know what uh, Montel's in California today. I think 
Brian's on a flight to somewhere out west, and, uh, but the rest of the guys are all here. So if you guys can come forward, Jason, Melissa can just stay in the middle and you guys get on either side of them. And we'll anoint, uh, we'll just kind of lay hands on him. It's not always that we do this, but we've never had this backdrop, Jason. You know, uh, Jason uh, retired from the Navy, and now he's, uh, now he's uh, working. Are you government contractor, or now you're government again? Government. He's government again, so be careful what you say around him. But, uh, um, but at any rate, uh, you know, he, he did his years, 20-some uh, uh, 20, 20 years now in the Navy, and retired from that, so... Um, We've got all these uniforms back here, but they're not quite navy. The, the, you know, we got na- knights and stuff like that. But we're glad to, we're really glad to see uh, people con- continuing to grow and mature in the Lord. And as I told the first service, um, we have in this church, we are really blessed to have a lot of people. Some of you seated, seated out here are, in every sense of the word, deacons and deaconesses for the Lord. And so we have a lot of deacons and deaconesses, um, a lot of the ladies. A lot of the men that serve in different capacities. Some of them you'll never know who they are because they kind of serve in the shadows. Well, you'll know who they are if you talk to them, but you wouldn't know that they do certain things. Uh, and then there's so there's the deacon deaconess work that's just uh, essential to the operation of any church ministry. And then you have the formal role, which adds on additional responsibility. You might have to go visit a hospital. You might have to go do things that other people don't have to do uh, or aren't called to do or aren't asked to do. And so those are things that we ask of these men, and so uh, keep them all in prayer, uh, but I want to pray over Jason and then Melissa's, uh, his wife, and at his side, and, and they're serving together in the ministry uh, with the children, too. So let's pray over them. Thank you for praying and supporting them. Lord, we just thank you for bringing Jason and Melissa first to Christ. We thank you for their salvation as you brought them to yourself. Um, and Lord, then bringing them here from California, uh, using uh, the transfer with the Navy and then uh, just kind of integrating them into this church fellowship. We thank you for how they have grown as a husband and wife, how they've grown as a family, how they've grown in your grace, and Lord, how they've matured. And, and Lord, they have much to add and to help others, and they have such servants' hearts. And Lord, I just pray uh, that as you raise Jason up now to be a deacon, to serve you, Lord, you give him added wisdom, added strength, give them added the added protection of the Holy Spirit, and they may they continue to mature and uh, be used in great ways in the days in which to come, that more kids and families, and even this coming week at VBS, we would see uh, just uh, people transform. Thank you for these men and uh, all the congregations standing with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Yeah, you can be seated. I see some of you with fans. It feels like old time church, doesn't it? You know, uh, uh, we would open up the doors, but it might get worse. Uh, it's so humid outside. Um, then uh, I want to just uh, also make mention that uh, next uh, two weeks from now, uh, we have a team headed to Guatemala. Eight people on the team. Uh, we will have them. We'll pray over them. They'll be up here uh, next Sunday. We'll pray over them as they head out. Today we have a kind of familiarization meeting with them, uh, those of us who have been to Guatemala and have been on that trip. And so myself and Pastor Trevor and others will be meeting with them uh, just to kind of answer questions and just pray and, and just uh, fellowship a little bit at, uh, later this afternoon. And then they'll be headed two weeks away, uh, well, the 25th of August, and they'll be gone for seven full days. So be praying in advance for uh, the Guatemala team. We're excited about uh, getting back into mission trips. We kind of had this pandemic 
uh, pause, and the pause is over, and we're looking next year potentially, Uganda, also Italy, and back to Guatemala uh, in uh, 2024. And those of you that are going to Israel, be on the, I don't have a slide for this, but uh, we will have an Israel meeting uh, pretty soon to talk about and answer questions for those of you that are going uh, with us to Israel. So with that, um, it's a little tight. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to get on your knees today, um, but I am going to pray for revival, and I'm going to pray for the nation of Belgium. Uh, that's uh, every week. Last week we prayed for Saudi Arabia, you might remember, and so every week we pray for a different nation. Uh, Belgium's probably appropriate today. They have castles there, just like uh, behind me, so uh, probably appropriate, and uh, we will uh, pray for the revival of our own nation. Uh, I'll talk about some of these things in a study today. Uh, the only thing, uh, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie, uh, who helped um, you know, contribute to the Jesus Revolution movie, and if you've uh, been part of, I've actually been part of two of his Harvest Crusades, and um, God, God's used him in a great way as an evangelist, along with Franklin Graham and others. But uh, he wrote this week in the Washington Times that America basically has two options, revival or judgment. And I have felt that for years. Uh, I don't know how many of you agree with that, but I... I really have felt that for years, and really I've felt it since post 9-11, because as I've mentioned numerous times, we didn't just kind of walk away from God post 9-11. We've doubled and tripled down on our rebellion as a nation. Uh, thankfully, uh, I believe we are people that are standing in the gap, and I want to be those that are standing in the gap, but um, we're kind of breaching the, the, the Lord just stay. Remember, uh, Abraham was praying. He was trying to stand the gap for Sodom and Gomorrah, and we have a country that's gone the same direction in every way, shape, or form. So we continue to pray for revival. So just uh, where you're at, let's just uh, bow our heads and pray, and I'll also pray for Belgium as well as the persecuted church. And you just saw next Sunday the ladies will be watching that uh, after the Sunday service for, uh, for the young at heart. Lord, we just uh, bow before you now. Lord, we humble our hearts. Uh, Lord, we're not on our knees at this moment, but in our hearts we certainly are. And Lord, we know that you are a God that is gracious and full of compassion. You're, Lord, you're not willing that any should perish. We thank you for our own salvation. And even in this room, we ask that you'd cleanse us and forgive us of our own sins and iniquities and even blind spots that we're not aware of that we brought into this room. We thank you for your grace. We know that you've shed your grace on this nation. We know that you have stayed uh, and, 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 Lord, have uh, resisted so far, or uh, held back from the judgment that we so richly deserve as a country. But, Lord, you continue to call us to repentance from Washington, D.C. and our leaders there to the business leaders in places like New York and Chicago to the entertainment leaders in, in California and Los Angeles and uh, academic leaders and small and medium government and homes and families and individuals and churches, Lord, that in many cases are lukewarm and have walked away from preaching the gospel. Lord, we pray that you bring repentance from coast to coast, from city to city, from state to state. Lord, we know it's the only answer, Lord. It's, we know that's the only thing that can heal broken lives and people with addictions and people that have been abused. And we see all the ravages, Lord, of idolatry and immorality and uh, racism and all kinds of, Lord, just uh, violence and all, all the things that we see that break our hearts, we know, Lord, that they break yours. 
So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, but Lord, soften our nation and our leaders and people with no name at all would repent and turn to the true and living God. And we would see healing in this land and healing in the body of Christ. We pray for the nation of Belgium, Lord. We might not even know a single person there, but we know that you know every single soul in that nation. We pray that you'd bring revival and repentance there and across the world, Lord, around the nation. And Lord, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters even now, whether they be in North Korea, China, parts of the Middle East, Iran, Africa. Lord, around the world, we pray that you would deliver them, rescue them, heal them, and reunite them with, your fa with their families. Lord, give them your peace and the presence of their enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Since I can't fan myself, I'll roll up my sleeves. And we'll shorten this from three hours to two, so uh, I'm kidding. Acts chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 and then the first half of verse 8. Uh, and then we're going to cover all, we're going to cover 22 verses, 1 through 22, and you'll be amazed that we'll pull it off, but uh, starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 4, now as they spoke to the people, the priest the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power and by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and we'll stop right there. Let's pray again. Father, we... Uh, ask that you would speak mightily by your word, the same spirit that Peter preached in. Lord, we pray that you would speak by your spirit to every single heart, those that are watching online, those that are out in the fellowship hall, those that are in this sanctuary. Lord, you'd speak by your spirit. I pray for the help of your spirit. I need your anointing. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your counsel. And Lord, we all need to hear you with open ears and soft hearts to be not just doers, but appliers of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Peter and John had been used by the Lord to bring healing to a man that had been lame from birth. And this miraculous healing opened the door for Peter to stand and to represent Jesus and the gospel to his Jewish brethren there in the temple. Peter had explained that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, through Jesus and through faith in Jesus, had made this man whole, had healed him. And Peter preached the straightforward message that the people and the rulers in Jerusalem had murdered Jesus, whom God had sent to them. But that God had then raised Jesus up from the dead, had received, received him back into heaven, and that Jesus had come down to the earth to bring salvation, 
that he promised to bring times of refreshing to every soul and even the nation of Israel if, if they would repent, which is a big if, isn't it? And turn from their sins. And as chapter 4 opens up, it's still the exact same scene. They're still in the same place that we ended in chapter 3. They're in, they're in the same exact spot right there in the temple. They're still in the temple sharing the gospel with the people. It's a little later in the day. Remember, the healing took place a little after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now it's late in the day. It's about to turn to the next day. If you know anything about how the way the Jewish calendar works, the day starts when the sun goes down. It's a new day. So the new day is about to start. And it's clear that as Peter and John were preaching and teaching that the Holy Spirit was opening eyes. Aren't you glad when the Holy Spirit opens people's eyes? And he was opening, the Spirit was opening eyes, and that many were hearing not just with their ears. They weren't simply hearing with their ears, but also with their hearts. But while many were ready to believe, we don't know how many people in America are ready right now to believe. They're really close to being ready. I believe there's more than we think. I believe we could see a harvest in this year or in 2024. But although many were ready to believe, and come into eternal life through Jesus, others were determined to resist and even silence the apostles. Exactly as they planned and plotted to do it with Jesus, they were going to do it all over again here with Peter and John. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, When Jesus is Preached, Rebirth or Resistance. Rebirth or Resistance. And if you're already saved, it's more like refreshing. You're not being reborn, but you're being refreshed. But we're talking about a new audience that has not really heard or received the gospel. They're going to either receive it or reject it, resist it. Back to verse 1. In verse 1, now as Peter spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Uh, so as Peter and John, they continue to preach and teach, uh, they're sharing uh, much more than Luke records. We only have a little bit of what they probably said, but they've shared many more things. You can imagine they're expounding on the Old Testament. They're talking about the ministry and life of Jesus, coming at it from any angle to convince people you need to be, uh, you need to be coming to Christ for salvation. But while they're doing this, uh, whether related to the Scriptures or the ministry of Christ, Luke doesn't record all of this. At some point, some of the priests the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, members of the Sadducees, they had had enough. They're like, we cannot take these guys preaching and teaching anymore in the name of Jesus. And it says in your text there, they were greatly disturbed, greatly annoyed, deeply bothered by these men preaching Jesus. Now the Sadducees, you guys are familiar with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were rival factions they were religious but political at the same time. That's a really bad combination, right? Uh, <laughs> deeply religious, deeply political, and they were rivals. The Sadducees did not believe in a physical resurrection. They didn't believe that any bodies would be raised from the dead. If you died, you just went to heaven if you were saved. Uh, they didn't use the term saved, but if you were uh, God's children, you would go on to heaven. Uh, if you weren't, God would send you to hell. But there was no resurrection of the body. Now, we know there is a resurrection of the body. Jesus of the first fruits of the resurrection. They didn't believe in that, but they actually had this co with the Pharisees and other factions, the scribes and all that. 
where they would actually, even though they were at odds with each other, they still kept some bit of kind of diplomacy for the greater political kind of stranglehold on power that they held collectively together. It would be like Congress working together, and by the way, you might not realize it, sometimes they work things behind our backs. <laughs> Did you know that? Sometimes they meet, and you would think that they come out, you say this, and I'll say this, and you say, and will it look like a ping-pong paddle? But we actually are on the same side behind the door, closed door, but they'll never know the difference, right? So that doesn't happen anymore, but it did happen back then. <laughs> Thankfully... We don't have to worry about that ever again in our lifetime. You guys have been around, haven't you? Verse 2, uh, so being greatly disturbed, uh, they, they preached Jesus and the resurrection, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The healing of this miraculous man, uh, the, the miraculous healing of this man, uh, and all the convincing truths that Peter had laid out, it didn't move any of them. Their solution was arrest them. It wasn't like, how did this happen? Tell us more. It was arrest them. We, we, we have to stop and just silence them. Spurgeon had this to say about the Sadducees. He said, the Sadducees, uh, as you know, were the broad school. The liberals, now he's speaking in London at the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle there in the late 1800s. Uh, the word liberal, it means a lot of what it means today, but it doesn't mean the exact same thing. Uh, here's a good way to uh, interpret this uh, in our language. If I said, the Sadducees, you know, were the broad school, the tolerant, the advanced thinkers, the modern people of the day, they are the liberal or the tolerant to everybody except those who hold the truth. Doesn't that sound similar? Tolerant to anybody except those that hold the truth. And for those, they have a reserve of concentrated, deep-seated bitterness that far exceeds wormwood and gall. That was London in the late 1800s. And today, it's the same truth. In our country, the tolerant are tolerant of anything but truth. Uh, you can do anything. You can see that in the libraries and all this other stuff. Anything but truth. The only solution in their minds, was to arrest Peter and John and to stop anyone else from hearing and believing what the apostles were preaching and proclaiming. Now, it's noteworthy that, uh, as it was then, it's still been this way for the past 2,000 years. Wealth, power, and positions are really hard for people to give up and surrender themselves to Jesus. Would you agree with that? If you have a lot of wealth and a lot of power and a lot of position and Jesus says, drop it and come to me, people are weighing this out. Hold on. I won't get invited to that anymore. I'm not going to be a big shot. I'm not going to have the title. I'm not going to have the prestige. But praise God, it certainly does happen. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, right? They had position. They had some wealth. Uh, but... The response of the ruling class here, as it was with Jesus, is all too common, and, and the scriptures speak directly to it. Not indirectly, but directly. Remember when Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He tried to tempt him with kingdoms and power, which was a fool's game because it had no chance of succeeding. Jesus was not going to yield even a, a centimeter to Satan. And imagine, you ever seen the pictures of NASA? 
uh, where you have Earth and the universe and, and it's like arrow to this little dot. Satan's like, I will give you stuff on that dot that fades really fast. It's not even the same period of time. Stuff on that little dot that's inside that little dot for this little bit of time, if you will worship me. And Jesus says, I hold the entire universe in my hand. But he tried to trick and it didn't work. Now Jesus said about those that, are, that have wealth and power, he said directly, Mark 10.25, it's also recorded in Matthew, it's also recorded in Luke, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you've probably heard, I've heard some of the pastors preach this. It's, if you've ever heard them say, now the eye of the needle was this narrow little area where the camel had to get down on its knees and they had to kind of push the camel through this uh, limestone and there was a narrow spot. That is not what Jesus is saying at all. Here's how we can prove it. If that's what it was, then the apostles wouldn't have been amazed at all. They wouldn't have, their very next thing is, well, then who can be saved? They saw the camels go through those little narrow spots all the time. That was not amazing to them. But if Jesus said, if I put a camel through an actual needle, that blew their minds. They're like, well, then who could possibly be saved? So we know that it wasn't what, any of you ever heard that analogy? It's not what Jesus meant at all. He was saying this is how strong wealth and power and positions are very simultaneously all together. Usually a lot of times people, if they have wealth, they also have power, and they also have position all at the same time. But any one of them has a strong gravitational pull away from God and away from repentance. Because trading kingdoms and possessions and power and success... And the idols of this world, for an unseen world, the unseen kingdom of God is both an act of faith, but it's also to, to deny yourself. Jesus said you deny yourself and take up your cross. Remember the rich young ruler, he went away sad because he had many possessions. It's not that he didn't know Jesus was true. He said, teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? He understood that Jesus had the answer. And Jesus said, sell everything you have. He's like, well, I can't do that. I can't give up my membership at the country club. I, I, I sit on a board. I've got power. I've got position. I, I remember hearing this true story. Uh, it was about the same time that um, uh, William Booth had started the Salvation Army, and there was a doctor, a very wealthy, successful doctor in London who had gotten saved, and he was coming out of a, uh, it was a Christmas um, one of these where everybody dressed up with tuxedos, and it was just really, really a big to-do, a gala-type uh, Christmas thing. And across the street were these poor people who had come to faith in Jesus, and they were standing on the, on the, on the street just uh, sharing the gospel with anyone. And he saw them across the street, and he turned to his wealthy friends. He had now gotten saved. He said, I must leave you. Those are my new people. And he walked across the street, and so he just realized that God had called. He, he realized that I, if I really have come to faith, I've got to walk away from. Doesn't mean that he get stopped practicing medicine, but he's like, I can't focus on just kind of hanging out in this ivory tower of. By the way, you ever notice the, the wealthy people that tell us all these? They don't really hang out in poor neighborhoods. Have you ever noticed this? I don't really ever see them there doing anything. They have a lot of platitudes, but there's really no action behind it. And so he walks across the street, and I'm paraphrased exactly how he said it, but something like that. But far, far too often, 
the wealthy and the and I'm not, Jesus isn't against wealth and money. It's against keeping you from heaven. That's the po- the point. But the wealthy, the powerful, and the well connected uh, often they decide that earth is going to be their heaven. And you don't have to be wealthy to decide earth's going to be your heaven. There's college kids that can't buy a cup of ramen noodles that have decided to make earth their heaven too. So it doesn't it isn't exclusive to wealth and power. But they've decided to convince themselves these rulers here, and still the rulers in the world most today, have decided they don't need Jesus. One second after death, they'll realize they did need Jesus. It's the worst of all self-deceptions to convince yourself that we don't need Jesus. Now, Paul wrote of the fact that those that have wealth and power and position, uh, that, that they're, they're not the norm of those that are coming to Christ. He says this in 1 Corinthians one uh, twenty-six. It's up on the screen. For you see your calling, speaking to the church there in Corinth, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, not many super educated according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many with titles and kings and governors and mayors and, and presidents, all that, not many noble from the wealthy to do families are called. Paul says it straight out. He says, you look around, he says, look around the congregation there in Corinth, uh, that it, it's not most of the big shots in town. It's just your common, hey, I realized I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and I didn't have to kind of like wonder, well, what am I going to give up? Like, that's why there's many slaves that are in heaven and plantain, plantation owners in hell. Because they knew this world was not their home. And so Jesus was freedom. He was liberation. It doesn't say, by the way, in the text, that's what it says. Paul doesn't say any, he says many. Isn't that good to know? So we still could see Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or billionaires come to Christ. He doesn't say any, he says many. Many. Not many. Paul himself was highly educated, spoke probably six or seven different languages. Paul had power. Paul had it all before Christ. Paul had power. He had authority. No doubt Paul was well compensated by the high priests and the religious leaders when he left it all for Jesus. So Paul defies this very, even the thing Paul's saying, he defies this rule. So God always has people that defy the rule to show that all can be saved. Amen? Anyone can come to Christ, even a person that has, supposedly has it all. But the pull and power of this world, it can't be ignored, and Scripture doesn't ignore it. In fact, it intentionally warns of it. That's why Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Notice back the wording in verses 1 and 5. Um, in verse 1, it says, Now as they spoke, they would be in the apostles, to the people, then comes the priests and the Sadducees and the temple guard, then drop down to verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, so you have the people and their rulers. You see the class different? The people, people down here, the rulers. The people marveled at the miracle. The masses marveled at the miracle. They listened intently to Peter's preaching of the gospel. They were engaged and open to what the apostles were saying. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, they aligned themselves in force against the message to silence the message. But praise God, they moved a little too late. But four 
they place these guys into custody, and they do. They come and arrest them. Many souls got saved. Did you notice that? Uh, in verse 5, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. They waited a little too long. By then, a lot of people were convicted and said, we want Jesus. We want to be saved. We want to be redeemed, whether this is a brand new 5,000 souls, which I believe it is, or it's 2,000 added to the original 3,000 in Acts chapter 2, bringing it to 5,000. So you count the 3,000 plus 2,000. And there is debate among scholars. Some think that this is an additional two that makes it five. Some think it's a brand new five. I think it's a brand new five because Luke is a super detailed writer as a physician, and Luke never really misses a detail without explaining the details. So for me, when Luke says 5,000, he means a brand new 5,000, because I believe Luke would have said, now in addition or something like that, adding to, he doesn't say that. Uh, but Luke's wording, the number came to be, supports either view, so I understand why people might look at it that way. We'll know for sure when we get to heaven. But I believe Luke will say, yes, I wrote 5,000. Now you see the 8,000 here in heaven. Uh, that's exactly what I was talking about. At any rate, 2,000 or 5,000 is an amazing altar call. I've, I look forward to the day when we have like 12 people at, at the altar getting saved. So uh, usually we have like, and I'm, last week we had one person stand up and praise God. That was a, it was a blessing. Jesus leaves the 99 for one. But, but I look forward to it. I believe someday we'll see like 40, 50 people get saved on a day. I believe that will happen. But notice, the, uh, notice what they say in verse 4. Uh, and it's a big difference between the Sadducees and the captain. It says, however, many of those heard the word and believed. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes, these people believed everything about Jesus and they repented and gave their hearts and lives to Christ. 5,000 saved, while two guys are being arrested. Fast forward to the next day, verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day. So Peter and John got to spend the night in jail. That's always exciting. Hey, Lord, this is our reward. 5,000 people get saved. We don't get to go to TGI Fridays and celebrate or something. We get to... They didn't have that back then. You didn't realize that, right? But um, I haven't even thought of TGI Fridays in years. But anyway, they had to spend the night in jail, but on the next day came to pass that the rulers, the elders, the scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, as many as were the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem, and they, when they had set them in their midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? They know the name, by the way. There, down goes one of our props. Uh, if you're over there, I hope it was like a fan as it ru rushed by you. But uh, um, the decision makers are gathered, the religious rulers of this Jewish community. Uh, these were men that, because of what God gave under the law to Moses, these men, uh, if they were the household of Levites, they were called, I'm talking about the priesthood specifically, and then the men that would actually support the priesthood, they were called under Moses to be servants of the people. Instead, they were self-serving. 
men that had a lust for power, they had a lust for control. With some of our political leaders today, do you really believe public servant is a great title? Uh, when you see it's like self-service is what it is. Uh, public servant doesn't really seem to apply. It's not a really accurate description of many. Now, th- I, I believe we do have some public servants, and I thank God for them. But I'm just saying on the whole, there's a whole lot of people that this doesn't apply to. Like, how, how did you, you went into Congress, you were worth 100 grand, now you're worth 5 million five years later. I don't, how does this work? Right. How many lobbyists own you or whatever else? And you see that, but it's not any better with some of the celebrity pastors. They're self-serving too, and you know they're flying around on private jets or fleecing the flock and all this stuff, and people are barely making ends meet, helping them be wealthy. None of this is of what Jesus called. Right. He didn't call any. He called all leaders to be feet washers. Amen. These guys aren't feet washers. They're put you in jailers is what they are. There's no rejoicing from them that a man who's been lame for life has been healed. They do not care at all that this man has been healed. They, of course, don't think God was involved in the healing. I guess they think Satan healed him or something, but they don't think, remember, they accused Jesus of that. He said he's the son of Beelzebub. They said he did some of his miracles by the power of demons. That's what they accused when they, they were the ones controlled by the demons. But Jesus, remember, Jesus went before both Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest during this time. Um, and not only was he the high priest during this time, Annas used to be the high priest, and so that's why he has the emeritus title of high priest, but they're both, they had both either been or were the high priest. And together, they condemned Jesus' death. They shipped Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. They made the call, Pilate, you have to kill him. And they even convinced the crowd to make sure they yelled crucify him when Pilate was going to release him. We don't know who John and Alexander are, but we know these rulers, and so John and Alexander must have been uh, had some positions of authority in ruling with them, but they asked, by what power and name have you done this? They know these men were preaching the name of Jesus. But Peter answers them anyway in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to die that day. It's right here. <laughs> God raised up from the dead. This man stands here before you whole. Yeah. As Peter addresses the rulers, that was verse 9 and 10. As he addresses the rulers, uh, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And let me say, there's no other way to confront men that are being used as tools of Satan than to be filled with the Spirit. You do not want to go into this scene not filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, you don't want to go to work tomorrow not filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? You don't know what tomorrow holds. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit wherever you go, whatever scene uh, you're in. Uh, But if there's no Spirit's help, then you have no chance against evil. No help of the Spirit, no chance against evil. But we need to be filled with the Spirit for all the scenarios of our life. Anytime we're endeavoring to speak on behalf of the Lord. And Peter goes on, he addresses the rulers, and Peter expresses the preposterous reason of why they've been arrested. He's like, look, if we're being arrested for a good deed, done literally to a helpless man who had been carried to the gate of the temple, the, the beautiful gate there, every single day of his life, and now he's been made well, they're like, this shouldn't be a trial. 
should be a praise and worship service, right? Right, right? But the world and the world's religions, they don't want God. They don't want the reminder of God. They don't want the presence. They want to be gods. Peter continues, he says, You asked what name? By the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Indeed, there is great power. By what power? They said, by the name of Jesus, and he is the power, and there is great power in the name of Jesus. You want to just kind of change the temperature in any situation? Just slip in the name Jesus in your conversation. And watch people's body language. When you're not using it as a swear word, they can use it as a swear word, no one bats an eye. Use it in the context of, well, Jesus has done this in my life. Whoa! We're trying to have fun here. You're messing up the atmosphere. That tells you that he brings conviction in any situation. Even if, they're not, even if it's not a sinful situation. Maybe they're just kind of talking about how successful they are. People love to talk about how successful they are. It's like, you know, Jesus has done this for me. It gets a little weird after that. Peter invokes that power. He makes sure to magnify the name of Jesus. And he doesn't hold back. He speaks directly to Annas and Caiaphas. says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Aren't you glad that God vetoed their murder? They did murder Jesus. But three days later, God says, your murder doesn't work. Back up from the grave. He arose and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. God vetoed their murder with the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. It's by that same power, Peter's saying, it's by that same power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, whom you murdered, but he is alive that this man's been made healed, whole, that he's been healed by that same power. And he goes on to say uh, in verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. They're getting quite an earful here. This is Jesus, the stone that you builders rejected. You were supposed to build on him. Instead, you tried to remove him. You were supposed to build around him and on him, and you tried to kill him. But in spite of their rejection, in spite of their trying to murder Jesus, and Jesus had risen from the dead, Jesus, by the way, he is the cornerstone. Amen? Amen. He is the cornerstone of my life. How about your life? He's the cornerstone of Israel, whether they wanted to realize it or not. He's the cornerstone of the church. By the way, he's the cornerstone of eternity. When you get to heaven, he's the light of heaven. Finally, Peter gives the exclamation point and the imperative of this less than one minute message. And I actually, yesterday, I took out my iPhone stopwatch and I read verse, I read the, where Peter, the quotations begin in verse 8, where he says, rulers of the people, to the last word of chat, or verse 13, saved. And I read it in my house, in my office, with authority, with conviction, with enthusiasm, and it took me 53.4 seconds, 53.4 seconds for me to preach it with a measured pace and with conviction and with enthusiasm. And what a powerful sub-minute message. Peter ends with this exclamation. Look at verse 13. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
I don't know how long it took Peter to read it. He was reading a different language than me. I don't know what, uh, how long, I don't know how his cadence was, what his accent was, what his pace was. Maybe it was 54 seconds, 55, 57, 49, I don't know. Uh, but what a powerful sub-minute message in defense of the gospel and defense by the Holy Spirit. But here's the crux of the message. By the word, that little word crux in Latin, it's short. It comes from the word crucifixion. So when someone in a conversation says, here's the crux of the matter, you can say, I didn't know you knew about the crucifixion. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you use the word crux, and that comes from the word crucifixion. Then they don't want to talk to you anymore. But uh, <laughs> build a, be, rebuild a bridge and get back on track. But uh, here's the crux of the message. He's saying that Jesus, the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, there is no salvation outside of Jesus. There's no salvation outside him. Jesus said, and Peter is now preaching the same exact truth right here. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You won't be able to say, well, God, I have a billion in stock options. Can I give those to you to get in? I've been really good. I was part of the United Way campaign for our company for 46 straight years. I worked on Habitat for Humanity. I name it all. God's like, Jesus, are they in you? Yes or no? That's all. That's, that's going to be it. There's no salvation. All roads don't lead to heaven. Just like all roads don't lead to Los Angeles. Get on 64 East, you will not get to L.A. I'm prom- You'll get to Virginia Beach and no further than the end of the pier. But all roads don't lead to heaven. All roads don't lead to L.A. All religions do not worship God the Father. And any path or any preferred method or any religion that anyone chooses will not bring a soul to salvation. In fact, I don't know if you ever noticed, but some religions don't even teach about salvation. They just teach about living a good life. They don't teach anything about salvation. They don't teach anything about what you need to know about when you die. And a bunch of them say you just cease to exist. If that's the case, Jesus didn't need to come at all. Because he was saving us. No, Jesus came to save humanity from sin, death, and hell. Sin, death, and hell. Those are the three reasons that he came to save us. That's why Peter says, look at the verse 13. Underline it in your Bible if you haven't. The last three words of verse 13 must be saved. Must be saved. Not, it's not an option. Not, you know, hey, you can do something different. Must be saved. We know this is so important. I put some passage up on the scripture. Look at all these verses. This is from uh, the first one from Mark 16, 16. Uh, there's several in here. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, from the teachings of Jesus himself, Jesus said, A man must be saved. Peter and the apostles in the book of Acts. The writings of Peter and Paul and John, you can see the book of Revelation there at the last verse, all of them mention saved. You had to be saved. The apostles said it. Jesus said it. You had to be saved. There was no shortcut. There's no other door you can enter but the doorway of being saved and salvation. And if pastors in this country, and sadly many pastors in this country, haven't used the word saved in months, if not years, some of them. 
uh, if pastors and believers, not just me in the pulpit, but you guys out there when you're just intermixing with your family and your friends and your neighbors, and if we're not using the word save, then we're diluting and we're deviating from the very clear message of the gospel. A great question you can ask people, say, hey, have you been saved? And they'll be like, I don't, I don't even believe in that old-fashioned word. They, we, we, didn't we drop that in 1950? No. Oh, the Bible, these are just a handful of the verses that this word is used. It's all throughout the New Testament. Jesus did not die for no reason at all. He died to save. Verse 13, as he says here, uh, we understand that uh, Caiaphas knew, um, look at verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. We know that Caiaphas knew John, uh, the family of John apparently knew the family of Caiaphas. And remember, John was allowed into, when Jesus was being interrogated by Caiaphas and interrogated by the priest, John was allowed in because it said that the priest knew him. And it didn't mean that John and Caiaphas were close. I, I told this in the first service. There's a lot of people I know in Richmond that I've, in my prior career, I know them well enough that if they see me and I see them, if we run into each other at Publix, or at the airport, or at the YMCA, or something. They'll say, hey, how you doing? I'll say, how? we're not good friends, we're not close, but they know me and I know them. I think that's kind of like Caiaphas and John. He knew who, they knew each other were, but they weren't close or tight, as best we could tell. But he had enough family relationship that he was allowed in, to, but he didn't say anything. John was a silent observer that night that Jesus was interrogated. Uh, they probably know by now, because the Pharisees knew uh, everything, and the scribes kept notes on everything, they probably knew by now that Peter had shrunk back that night. He was out, last Peter was seen, he was not saying, you crucified, and last Peter was out by the fire, denying even knew who Jesus was, even cursing to make sure that he made sure that they knew that he was not with Christ. Here he is, fast forward, just a couple months later, he's saying, you crucified him. And they're like, John was like a wallflower. Peter was hiding out there. Now they're bold as lions. And the clarity in which they spoke and the conviction, they spoke like men who had an education. They were untrained, but they, they, they could use theological words that, and they used them in ways that made sense. They weren't just making no sense. They were able to speak with conviction and with clarity, and they were preaching with power. And notice what else it said. They could tell they had been with Jesus. They saw the imprint of Jesus. Brother and sister, when people see you, do they see the imprint of Jesus in your life? Even at work tomorrow or wherever you go, do people see the imprint of Jesus? Do they see the joy of Christ? Verse 14 and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. This is amazing. You know the guy that got healed? Remember we talked about he didn't need to hang on the apostles to stand up. He had the best legs in town. But he was hanging on them, in my view, because he was glad he now had a family. He was embracing them like, I have been an outcast my whole life. Now I'm in the family of God. And he was holding on to them. He, they spend the night in jail. He's there with them at the trial, standing with them, saying, these are my boys. Uh, these guys, I'm standing with them. Whatever's going down, I'm going with them. Whatever. This is how all in he was. Isn't that amazing? Wow. He's standing there whole. He's like, hey, y'all, uh, I was lame for 40 years talking to the priest. They, they ignore him the whole time and only speak to Peter and John. The healed man is standing with the apostles, 
Uh, notice that the, the rulers, they don't deny the evidence. They never even talk to the man. They don't even acknowledge him at all. They ignore it altogether, and this is exactly what I see rich and powerful people to do. They, they don't necessarily deny the evidence. They'll just ignore it. They know that the story will blow over, and you'll have forgotten in three days. There'll be a new cycle coming, and they know that it'll be totally forgotten. They just ignore it altogether. And by the way, with corrupt leaders, they're seeing a guy who has been lame for 40 years standing there. If you think proving something to them will change your mind, think again. You can show them the math equation. You can show them the scientific results. You can show them everything, and they'll say, we don't care. We're in charge. That's basically what they're saying here. We don't want your God. We don't want your miracle. We don't want anything. We know we're right. Verse 15 through 18, bring it to a close here. Pick it up with verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they con uh, conferred among themselves, saying, What shall be done to these men? For indeed that a notable, notable miracle has been done in them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they may not speak uh, in, in this in, that they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. So the powers of be that they convene, uh, they get behind closed doors. Notice that when they get behind closed doors, they all admit that this is a miracle. They won't even talk about it publicly, but behind closed doors, they're like, all right, he's obviously been healed. We don't care how it happened. We don't care if it was God, demons, whatever. We're rejecting it out of hand. But he, it's obviously been healed. They get behind closed doors. They all agree a miracle's taken place. They have no interest in the source of the miracle. They have no interest in the power that's been revealed. They have no interest in the salvation that, Jesus, that Peter has proclaimed, that they must be saved. They don't have any interest unless... There is a heart change. There will be no change. Amen. Amen? Amen? Unless there is a heart change, there will be no change. It's why I pray and I vote for the best possible candidates I can possibly find, which is harder and harder to find, but I, I do the best I possibly can, and I pray and I vote, but I have no faith in elections. I only have faith in revival. How about you? I only have faith in revival. Unless God sends a revival, you can't convince people. You can't convince people of much lesser things than salvation. Amen? I mean, salvation's way up there. You, you can't convince them that this or that is right or wrong or true, whatever the case may be. But they do what leaders do they when they lust for power. They decide, here's what we're going to do. It's our number one calling card. We are going to severely threaten and intimidate them. This isn't new. This has been going on for thousands of years. Uh, so they decide to severely threaten and intimidate them. Uh, they say, here's the deal. If you don't mention Jesus, we won't hurt you. Right. Right. Sounds like a great deal, huh? Yeah. You don't mention Jesus, we don't hurt you. Or your family members, because in some countries, they not only say, well, we not only hurt you, We'll make sure, like in North Korea, if they arrest you, they'll probably execute your whole family too. And sometimes torture them all. You don't mention Jesus, we won't hurt you. And they try to instill fear in the apostles. Verses 19 through 22. Last couple of verses, and then we're done with these verses. 
uh, for today. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For this man was over 40 years old, from whom this miracle had been performed. Peter and John, they now have a measure of faith that is greater than their fear. Don't you want that? Don't you want a measure of faith that's greater than your fear? You might not be facing persecution today from religious leaders or political leaders in North Korea or Iran or something like that. You might not be facing that. Some of our brothers and sisters are. But you probably, probably everyone in this room has had some fears at certain times that you're like, where did that come from? I've never even had that fear before. And in different life, you'll have fear in different seasons, and you'll need a faith that's greater than your fears. You'll need a faith that's overcoming your fears. And the Spirit was fortifying their faith, giving them courage that Peter didn't have a couple of months ago. Isn't that good to know that you can actually go from petrified by the fire to actually standing in the fire by the fire of the Holy Spirit in a cup? It doesn't even have to be a matter of months. It could be a matter of days. It's our yielding to the Lord. And you know, uh, when you know God, and you know what he's done in and through you by Jesus, and you trust in his word, uh, you allow him to overcome your own thoughts, your own feelings, or anyone else's thoughts or feelings that they want to put on you. I don't know if you know this society wants to put a lot of feelings on us and a lot of fears on us, and a lot of thoughts on us, that God's like, no, that's not of me, that's of this world. I'm giving you the mind of Christ. Amen. And so they, were, they had a faith and a boldness here to say, um, they go on to make the salient point, Peter and John make the salient point that, uh, hey, if, if we're listening to God, and they certainly were, whether it was right to listen to God who created them and the rulers, they're like, if we're listening to God, and you're telling us to do something opposite of what God's told us to do, how is this even a question? That's basically what Peter's saying. Like, How are we even having this discussion? You're asking me to disobey God, and you guys supposedly report to God? And you you guys are the leaders of the worship of God in this city? How is this even a question? They go on in verse 20. uh, They say, we're going to keep sharing what we've seen. We're sorry to tell you. We're going to keep sharing exactly what we've seen. By the way, that's what Jesus told them to do. That's what Jesus has told me to do. If someday the governor of Virginia or the president says that pastors in America no longer preach in the name of Jesus, I will be going to the slammer. Right? Yeah, that, I understand that this is the way it could go in this country or any other country. But these hard-hearted leaders, they don't give up easily. They decide to threaten them one more time. Did you notice that in the text? And severely threaten them again. They double down on that. They threaten them with more intimidation. And notice that these guys have no fear of God. Did you notice who they did fear? They let them go because of the people. They were afraid a riot could break out, and they're afraid they might get lynched or something, or, or, or taken, or beaten, or whatever it was, but they were afraid of the people. So they decided they didn't want to let them go. They were like, we need to let them go because if the crowd revolts, we could be the dead men here when they really wanted to stone them on the spot. They severely threatened and said that they were afraid of the people. No fear of God. And notice that they, they marveled, they marveled at the 
boldness of Peter and John, they never marveled at the miracle. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. They marveled at the boldness, but they never marveled at the miracle. People, if you, like I was telling someone uh, after the first service, they, they asked me about that point. I said, here's the deal. If you tell your neighbors, guess what? God saved my life. They're like, that's wonderful. If you told them, hey, I just found out I inherited $10 million, they'll celebrate that. And they're like, where are we going? You know, that kind of, kind of thing. So it's amazing what people will marvel over. They don't marvel over salvation or miracles, and they, these guys don't marvel over the. This man, last verse, it says he's been, uh, verse 22, for this man has 40, over 40 years old, and the miracle had been performed. This man had been lame for more than 40 years. I don't know if you realize that. He had been lame before Jesus had been born. How do we know this? We'll do the math. Jesus has only been ascended back into heaven a couple of months earlier. We're talking about, we don't know how long here, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 days, depending on how long this took place after Acts chapter 2. But a few months earlier, Jesus ascended back to heaven, right? right? Jesus was 33 years on the earth. So Jesus, you're talking about 33, maybe 34 years max. This man had been lame for more than 40 years, so he was at least six years old, maybe seven years old, when Jesus was born. He had been at the gate of the temple even when Mary and Joseph had brought baby Jesus to be circumcised, he was already probably being brought to the temple and laid in front for years. It said his whole life people had been carried in there over 40 years. When it says everyone in town knew who he was, it means everyone in Jerusalem. And those of you that go to Israel, you'll realize that it's that old city area that we'll go to is not really big. If someone was there for 40 years, you would notice them unless you just didn't want to notice anybody. You know, there's people like that say, I don't want to notice anything, that means I might have to do something. So uh, that's the way that meant the Good Samaritans, they didn't want to see it. But he had been there a long time, even before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We don't know why Jesus walked past him and never healed him, but we do know he intended it for this to be the launching point of not only this man getting saved. By the way, when you get to heaven, notice that he was right there with the apostles, I bet you he went on to be used by God in a big way. We just don't know what it was because we're not rec it's not recorded. But wrapping this up this morning, and I know it's warm in here, so we'll wrap it up here. For the several thousand souls that saw God move and believe in the gospel, they had been instantly saved. They had been reborn by Jesus, and they were ready for eternity. Sadly, those that, along with the rulers, they heard the same exact message. They heard the same words coming out of Peter's mouth. They resisted, and at this point, unless they changed, they were destined for everlasting judgment and a literal hell unless they repent. It's the same today and here in 2023. Anyone can hear the same message. It's where does the seed fall, right? Is there going to be repentance? Is there going to be resistance? Our job, and I'm glad this is my job. You know, uh, any of you ever fished and caught nothing? And Jesus, Jesus tells this, he comes up to them at the end of his, before he sends back to heaven. They've been fishing all night. They caught exactly zero. He said, now throw the net on the other side. Then a bunch of fish jump in. I can stand up here for years and see nothing happen and I could come one day, and all of a sudden, thousands of people get saved. You and I aren't responsible 
for the hall or the results. We're only responsible for presenting Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's all you're responsible for. Is like, be a light and a witness this week. Present Jesus and your attitude and your spirit and, yes, your words. God's responsible for the road. No one's, no one's buying what I'm presenting. It does not matter. One day, a bunch of people may all decide, and Peter was probably shocked that that many people got saved the same day. He probably thought, that's not going to happen after Pentecost. There's no way that could, and God said, watch this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we know that your word and your gospel has the power to penetrate and uh, even the hardest of hearts. And Lord, we know that uh, you can get through to anybody. And we pray, Lord, that uh, as we continue to walk in your grace and to walk in your spirit, Lord, that you would use us to be a light of the refreshing that comes through salvation to those. Lord, that we, our lives would make people around us thirsty, yeah. that they would desire to come to the Messiah the Savior of the world, that they would see their need for salvation, Lord, and you would give us the wisdom, the courage, and the boldness to, Lord, speak forth your name in maybe settings that we have overlooked as opportunities to present Jesus.